I mean, that's the, uh, that gets back to the name of the podcast. The, uh, the debate has a burden of proof versus burden of rejoinder problem. And uh, uh, the burden of proof is, is seriously minimized, uh, if not eliminated. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Burden of Rejoinder, a new podcast from the 3NR. I am Bill Batterman, and I'm here with Brian Manuel, my friend and co-host. We are taking a break from the Meadows Tournament. Uh, we're imagining that we were uh, that we're attending uh, the Bellagio Buffet and uh, walking around outside in the beautiful Las Vegas weather, but we are not. We are sitting at home in front of Zoom for the infinite uh, tournament in a row. Um, but it's still cool to uh, get to talk to you about uh, debate and to take a break from the tournament. So, Brian, how have you been doing? Great. I have students competing in Lincoln Douglas. I just recently had a student win the novice division uh, at nice. Meadows. Congratulations. So, that was nice. It was their second tournament that they're competing at. So it's always nice to, you know, have students excited. And, you know, Tim let us in at the last second. We switched from the Florida Blue Key tournament that was using the November topic to get some of the students one last shot. And, you know, so that was nice. I have students going around six in policy like you do. One of them is on the bubble. Uh, and I also have another student competing in the elims of Varsity Lincoln Douglas. So it's been a busy weekend. Uh, it's been a busy year. Uh, but like I said, I'm, I'm glad we've been able to have this opportunity to kind of chat, and get a nice little needed break from the competition spin to, to kind of have these conversations. We got two items on tap for today. We're going to do a quick segment updating you about the topic choices, the final ballot for next year's topics. Uh, and then we're going to do an extended segment about our reactions and our kind of review or analysis of the water topic so far. So um, now that we're about a quarter way through the season, we wanted to share our thoughts, kind of our key takeaways, talk about what we've seen, talk about what we expect to see in the future. Um, so those of you that are currently uh, active debaters, I think you'll get a lot out of this. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back with the first uh, segment about the two final choices for next year's topic. So the first thing we wanted to talk about in this episode, as uh, you probably know, the final two topic choices for next year uh, were announced after the first round of voting in the NFHS process. The two topics that are on the final ballot are the topic about NATO emerging technologies and the topic about multilateral climate regimes. Uh, I did a short post on the 3NR breaking down the vote and um, just kind of uh, I noticed a few things about how the vote played out. Uh, that you might be interested in reading. You can check that out there. Um, the next round of voting, the final round of voting ends uh, sometime late November, early December, depending on which organization you're voting in. Uh, so like the NDCA vote, I believe ends on uh, right at the end of November. Uh, so if you are a coach, um, make sure that you participate in whatever voting opportunities you have, whether that's your state organization or um, any of the national organizations that you're a member of. If you're a student, you know, take a look at the two topics and talk to your coach about which one um, you like. Uh, I think, and I'm curious if you agree with me, Brian, that climate change is more likely to win um, purely on an argument that I think you kind of uh, reminded me in our previous uh, episode about this, which is just that a lot of uh, voting is less uh, deeply thoughtful. It's just they kind of look at the two topic areas and like which one of these is the better topic. And to me, climate change is going to uh, be more appealing than 
NATO emerging technologies, like why not debate climate change? Uh, but I'm not sure about that. I think it's uh, it's certainly still undecided. Um, in breaking down the data, I can kind of make a case um, based on the preliminary round voting for either topic being the favorite. Um, so uh, I guess, do you have an early prediction about what you think the topic will be? Yeah, I think I agree with you that like climate change does seem to be an early favorite, mainly because of who makes up uh, the voting body for the Federation. But I also have thought about this a little bit and believe that a lot of people who vote for it may think that there's a lot of redundancy in what was being voted for. Uh, so they might think that like water is very much like the climate topic. So they have to think through like, what does the climate topic include? And I think that's where we'll get a little bit into this hiccup uh, that has already been identified, which is that this was written as a domestic paper and then pushed to be an international paper. And even though climate is a pressing crisis and there definitely is an international climate topic paper, that's not what this paper was intended to be. And I think when you dive into the paper, you'll probably be hard fought to kind of say, here's exactly what we would envision because like, it's always tough when you're at the line to call an audible and then be forced to go in a different direction. So if you want to come up to the you know line in football and want to pass and you're set on that, and then you have to figure out how to run you got to hope you're you're right in your pick. And I think it might be redundancy that causes NATO to edge ahead. But it's very easy to see climate on a ballot. It's very popular. Uh, it's a hot button issue. There's a ton of talk about it now in the context of the Biden infrastructure plan uh, and what's going to happen in the future. There was a ton of talk about it. You know, every year there's a ton of talk. And you know, every year or two, you'll see a topic come up and people propose it. So I do think there's going to be a lot of support for it. I do think based on the two topics, uh, it's, I think for the national circuit, it'll be very redundant. And I think it'll get very stale quickly because either you're going to recycle stuff that happened from the college topic a number of years ago, or you're going to read some stuff from the year reading from this year, uh, which a lot of these apps have become, you know, small microcosms of things that they've run previous years. And that's going to become like a stale topic and it's going to happen quick. But again, the national circuit is like a very small voting block in the larger grand scheme of things. But yeah, I think my early prediction is climate other than if people think it's redundant and I'm not really sure I want NATO to win. And we and obviously I could express my reasons for that, but yeah, my early my early predictions climate, and I think it will be close based on everything I've read. But I'm I'm sad to know that global health didn't make it. I thought it's indicative of the way the process works and how we need to kind of train people on rank choice ballot because I don't think people realize how your decisions could play out, and it's you know tough to watch leading vote getters not be able to reach the final two because of third and fourth place votes. So I think we missed an opportunity there. I do not think there will be a unique opportunity in the future to kind of revisit that topic. So global health will probably be something that like we'll need to have another global pandemic of some sort to energize. Cause I think, you know, there might've been some fatigue, but I think the first round ballots that liked it show that COVID fatigue was not a problem with that topic. Rather it was sort of, the way in which ranked choice worked out. And I think if people knew more about it and knew how to vote in ranked choice, you could have easily made it so your future vote did not go toward something else or some manner of that. But 
that's all for another time. Yeah, it's uh, we might do another uh, segment about this before the voting ends. I'm not sure which topic I prefer yet. I got to do some more reading, especially um, like you said, the there's not really a topic paper that supports the climate topic. And so got to do some kind of independent vetting of the wording and uh, see if I can uh, talk myself into, you know, either thinking it's a good mechanism that has some link uniqueness and um, creates a viable case list and some core negative ground or whether it's uh, too much in the same direction as the status quo. It's, it's fascinating that this is the topic when, um, as we're recording this, Biden is in Glasgow at the uh, International Climate Conference and they're negotiating multilateral, you know, climate initiatives. Uh, but the the precise wording uh, of that climate change topic has not been vetted yet. I mean, presumably it was vetted at the meeting, but it hasn't been publicly vetted. The uh, problem with the NATO topic, potentially, the, the kind of problem that I think a lot of people have immediately recognized is that a counter plan that just tries to address whatever the emerging technology issue is, not through NATO and a NATO disadvantage is a pretty strong generic negative strategy. And in one sense, that's good, um, but it's bad if the affirmative can't really defeat it. Uh, and it's also bad if, um, you know, whether or not the affirmative can defeat it, if the net benefit part, the disadvantage part, the NATO bad part is really not unique, um, which it seems like it might might be not unique. So the, um, the part about that, that I kind of still have to think through and do some more uh, research and reading about is just, are there viable affirmatives that can beat the, you know, do it not through NATO counter plan? And is the kind of NATO bad disad a strong argument? Like, and I can imagine what it would be like, but I think some of the people that um, recently dealt with a related topic in college um, have, have, been pretty skeptical that this is a, a viable framework for a whole season of debate. So I guess we'll have to see. Um, the uh, like I said, the voting is going to end sometime toward the end of next month. So you got a little time, a little while still to think about it. I'll probably do a post about uh, kind of what I find and what I'm eventually going to vote for. The other thing that we might want to revisit in the future is perhaps uh, you know reform proposals for how the first round balloting process goes. If they used a you know method more like the um, Major League Baseball uses for Cy Young or MVP voting, where you get you know five points for a first place vote, uh, and then fewer points down the line, that would have created a different outcome because the the two topics with the most first place votes didn't make it onto the final ballot, and that's a uh, you know depending on how you think about it, that's either that's fine, that's the way the process works, or maybe that's a problem that needs to be reformed. But uh, if you're interested in that, definitely check out the post that I wrote on the 3NR where I uh, explain all of that. So final two choices for next year will either be debating multilateral climate regimes or NATO emerging technologies. We'll find out on January 10th. But you still have a chance to have your voice heard and to participate in the process. Uh, if you're a coach, figure out uh, where you can vote. Uh, and if you're a debater, talk to your coach and uh, share your opinions. All right. The main segment for this episode, we wanted to... Uh, think about and talk about our reactions and our kind of review of the first quarter of the water resources protection topic year. So we're at about the quarter poll, the kind of two waves, first two waves of big tournaments have completed. We're now entering that third and fourth wave as we approach the end of uh, the year, uh, the calendar year. And then uh, of course, things will continue to develop into the second semester. But by now we have a better sense than we have had up to this point of what the topic is gonna look like. We can now feel a little bit more confident that we know uh, what the major arguments are, whether we like the topic, kind of what direction we think it's heading. Uh, in preparation for this episode, or as a, um, uh, an exercise that I wanted to share with people that I often do, I did a survey of the elimination rounds at the St. Mark's tournament from a few weeks ago, and I posted that on the 3NR. Uh, and I just went through each elimination round and tried to piece together from the wiki and um, 
speech documents, uh, what was what the affirmatives were, what the one NCs were, what the two NR went for, and who won. And uh, so in this episode, we wanted to uh, kind of use that as a springboard to talk about some of our major takeaways from the, re- the topic so far. So I've got a list of uh, four uh, main takeaways. And I guess the way we'll do this is I'll kind of give you my first takeaway and then I'll invite your reaction to it, Brian. And you can tell me uh, kind of whether you agree or disagree, or if you have a kind of related takeaways about the topic. The first thing, I think the most basic thing is to me, expectedly, uh, unsurprisingly, this is proving to be kind of a standard uh, late modern era domestic topic. And by that, I mean, it's it's following the same blueprint that uh, domestic topics of recent years have followed, uh, most notably the education topic from several years ago. Uh, the state's counterplan is very powerful. It has a kind of distortional effect on the topic. It, it kind of decides what affirmatives are viable. Uh, it, is a, uh, it shapes the topic more than it wins particular debates. Uh, there's not a great or, or clear core generic disadvantage. That tends to be a problem on many domestic topics. Federalism is often you know, considered the generic disadvantage, but in practice, the federalism disad has not ever really been good. Uh, the politics disadvantage is ubiquitous again. That's kind of a new thing um, from uh, recent, the last few years during the Trump administration. Uh, link uniqueness is very tough again. That tends to be the same thing on every domestic topic. Uh, affirmatives on domestic topics. This one included tend to not like the intrinsic advantages that they can garner from the resolution. And so they like to uh, try to access bigger or um, larger impacts, security impacts, uh, most especially. And so while there are some affirmative cases that are claiming kind of intrinsic water-based advantages, most affirmatives are claiming advantages that are something water and then something and then something, you know, a couple more interlinks across the chain. Uh, Topicality so far, as we kind of predicted, is meh. Some debates are being won on topicality, but not a great deal. Uh, and so it's it's just kind of, it's what we thought it was. It's not a terrible topic, but it's certainly not an exceptional topic. Uh, it's following a script that's quite similar to previous uh, domestic scripts, especially education to a lesser extent, uh, immigration and CJR. So I guess I'll leave it there and invite your feedback, Brian. Do you agree? Is this sort of a standard domestic topic? Or do you think that I have... Uh, missed something or maybe mischaracterized? No, I, I agree. It's a pretty standard domestic topic, but I don't think we have nearly seen the depth of what we have seen in other domestic topics because there's so many different categories of affirmative without a sort of a stem that allows people to have uh, in-depth literature on any of them. And what I mean by that is that you know, for the education topic, you know, there's a core of education being a state versus federal, right? And then tons of literature being read about it. So when you read your, wrote your counter plan, plus read your evidence, you would be able to have all these different mechanisms that kind of gotten to the point where like you level the playing field between the states and the federal government. I think with the water topic, a lot of these affirmatives are either sort of artificially competitive with the state's counterplan, meaning that the things that they talk about in their affirmative plan text aren't necessarily things that the states can do, or there's just really not literature that dive into kind of this federalism debate that exists uh, at that level and what it would look like, because there's not a, you know, deep debate that's happening on it. And one area is just kind of like, I've had this conversation with my students about sort of permits 
about agricultural runoff and CAFOs and, you know, how that all interacts with one another. And we had talked about it. You know, we've been losing debates to the state's counterplan because people are like, well, you didn't envision this like world of the state's counterplan, uh, you know, that they have like created. And it's like, well, there's only certain amounts. Like either the states can fiat that there's permitting uh, at the state level. But then I've always kind of talked to them about what does it mean at the federal level if there's already carve outs, if these things get challenged, can it be rolled back? And it's like, you know, the neg always comes up with these ideas that like, oh, well, like the rollback argument doesn't matter because you haven't envisioned this like new perfect system of utopia that we put in place. Well, it's like, there's really no debate being happened there because there are either states that are doing it and people are following along in those states or there are people who aren't doing it and they're not following along in those states because there's like federal carve outs and, you know, how those things work out. That's how, you know, it kind of fleshes out, but there's not like depth when it gets to that because there's not, that's not really a debate. It's not a, a debate that's happening in the literature. So I think the way the state's counterpoint is playing out, it's being read a lot. People are using it, but because the AFs are vague in what they do and the NEGs are vague in what they advocate and there's literature is super vague, it's given way to like kind of like the worst abuses of the domestic topic. So things have kind of like run away. The same goes for like disads in the context of like both the Biden agenda, sort of what a federalism disad would look like, and also you know, the BizCon disad because there's like only so much depth of like, what does that industry look like? Because there's no broad water industry to spill over to. So like all of the business confidence disads are very focused on, should be an industry and how it Im- impacts that. So maybe the energy industry or maybe the ag sector, or maybe there's another sector that they want to talk about, but there is no really like water sector. So it's not like there's a huge spillover argument to be made in a lot of these regards. And I think the spillover arguments that we're getting to are like very vague in what they're getting to, uh, you know, to get like these large impacts on the economy, because you could just read like a industry DA and have way more impact when it goes to that. But I just think that creators like a level of depth of research and, and stuff that's tough when you don't have a limit on the topic, because there's no ceiling to what could be read. So the result is like, what do we do to protect water? That's like super broad. So now we have everything under the sun, but just looking through some of the things you have on your list, you can also see that like a lot of halves are vague in their plan writing. And then more importantly, their advantages are even more tangentially linked to what the plan does, which I think is why you start to see in like later ELIMS advantage counter plans getting like so much more traction in those debates because the advantages aren't intrinsic to the AF because shockingly, the AF can't solve most of the stuff they talk about at the impact level, even though they do small things. I would much rather see AFs that were just like, you know, the federal government like ban CAFOs and just say like, that's protection of water because CAFOs are like problematic and CAFOs are bad. That would be like a good AF, I think, or these small AFs, but it's probably just no one wants to read a small AF when you have to deal with like the infrastructure DA or small AF when you have to deal with like the huge energy industry DA. Uh, But I think even you would agree that like the value of reading a small AF with a small advantage, it's intrinsic to it, makes it a lot harder to win these debates on a domestic topic for some of these super generics uh, that end up like doing so much damage in terms of like how they're read uh, and the, you know, the wins are lopsided. But I don't think like the topic now we can call, I don't think it's as balanced as like some of the early season results or even mid season results have shown. Cause I think a lot of it just goes to like, people are either ready to debate or they have their stuff ready, but I don't think, you know, it's just kind of like some kids are better than others. I don't think it's about the topic. I think the topic is probably unbalanced to the neg. It's just, we haven't seen it yet, but I think as the year goes on, we will start to see it. Uh, and some of the other stuff you have here, I think is, uh, we'll get down, go down that rabbit hole. 
Yeah. So along those lines, the second takeaway is that gap selection has been pretty predictable. It's been what you would think it would be um, given what you described. So there are a few affirmatives that are just sort of taking up the state's counterplan uh, and defending proposals that the states arguably could do. So the example would be the um, CAFO permitting AF or a WOTUS um, expansion AF, uh, expand the WOTUS definition in the Clean Water Act, or um, to some extent, the fracking affirmatives that were popular during the summer. Um, affirmatives that kind of have something of a a federal key argument or something of a solvency deficit to the state's counterplan, but not a, a clear dispositive one. Um, but uh, predictably, those affirmatives are going to are starting to and probably are going to continue to fall out of favor. Uh, and instead, affirmatives are, are selecting affirmatives that have kind of decisive, dispositive federal key arguments. So federal jurisdiction apps or apps that um, affect things that the states can't currently regulate or access, whether that's federal lands or federal infrastructure, federal dams, uh, military bases, uh, native reservations, stuff like that. Um, those always tend to become more popular on domestic topics because uh, the affirmative at some point just kind of gives up on the constant uh, rolling the rock up the hill against the state's counterplan. The other type of... Uh, affirmative that becomes very popular and is starting to become very popular. I noticed in the kind of the second wave of affirmatives, the new affirmatives that were read at the most recent big tournaments are process-based affirmatives, affirmatives that have maybe a water advantage and then a second process-based advantage that's designed to beat the state's counterplan. So that can involve court precedent. It can involve uh, international treaty compliance. It can involve soft power or uh, negotiations with other countries, uh, border-related stuff. Um, it can involve uh, changing the way that the federal bureaucracy works or whatever, stuff like that. Um, but it's some advantage that really has nothing to do with water resources protection. And instead, it's an advantage to the mechanism, the federal mechanism of the plan. So like in the final round of St. Mark's, uh, or I think it maybe it was read for the first time in the semifinals of St. Mark's, a new court affirmative was read by um, MBA. And I think that uh, that's predictable because those affirmatives uh, give the affirmative at least a better chance of defeating the kinds of uh, extreme mirror state counterplans that you were describing. Uh, And as the negative kind of gets better at those counterplans, it makes it harder and harder for the affirmative to win the more kind of traditional or or straight up, quote unquote, uh, cases like CAFOs or fracking or WOTUS or whatever. Um, And so I think that's probably going to continue. I also think um, court AFs in particular are going to become more, more common um, both because they give that process-based federal key uh, argument to answer the state's counterplan and because uh, there doesn't seem to be a very good court disadvantage at the moment. The like uh, typical court capital kind of argument doesn't really make sense anymore now that the court is so decisively conservative. Negatives are trying, but uh, in the, at least in the, in the current moment, I think it's more strategic for the affirmative to answer the court DA than it is to try to answer the politics DA, um, just because of the, the kind of inherent power of the politics DA, especially when, and this is an odd moment, this will probably be over soon because we'll, the, the reconciliation process will be played out. But it's particularly weird in this moment where the Biden administration's legislative strategy has been like, we'll put our whole agenda into two bills. Uh, and then those two bills will either pass or not. They're not piecing it. It's not like an individual policy will pass or not, like most politics disadvantages. The politics disadvantage right now is is quite literally like Biden's agenda will or will not pass. And if the negative can win that the plan trades off with Biden's agenda writ large, it's basically impossible to win that a specific individual policy is more important than Biden's entire agenda writ large. And uh, so compared to that, the court DA is nothing. So I think uh, affirmatives are already moving in this direction, federal jurisdiction apps and federal process-based apps. I think that's going to continue. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's like the smart way to go. I mean, we've talked about this like 
in earlier episodes, but the idea that mechanism-based advantages of your plan or agent-based advantages to your plan are one of the best ways to get around the state's counterpoint. I mean, my team has been reading like a Chevron uh, deference advantage that we started reading at this tournament and like people haven't really anything to say to it, um, mainly because it probably wasn't something that was prepared at camps and but how long could it last, you know, and go through that process. And like, that's what ends up happening. I think people will, the best teams, if you look at the top five or the top 10, when you think about the elims of, you know, Emory or the TOC later in the year or the NDCA, I think you're going to see teams that have like learned to prep out kind of like the best precedent-based advantages and kind of focus on getting if you were smart at this point, I think the way you'd have to start prepping if you wanted to be a top 10 team and be like, where do I, if I'm going to try to win the national championship, what am I going to do? I think you have to kind of say like, people are going to move to the court. They're going to have precedent-based advantages. What are those precedents going to be based on? Focus on trying to impact turn those things and try to be in a place where you can like counter plan out. Because I think the state's counter plan is going to solve like 85% of the AF. And then you just debate the pre- like whatever the context of the agent advantages and then you know focus on that i think they'll be really good on that like back in the day they used to have like the independent judiciary advantages people used to read and you know when i was coaching at cps we used to read like sort of like a court stripping counter plan and then we just say independent judiciary bad and that would be like the afs would be in a tough position because like they had not been hearing that but at the point where it's like you have a mechanism counter plan that's you know does something like court stripping and then like your con, you know, kind of basic two AC arguments you would read against the Congress counter plan don't necessarily apply because that, and then you have like a huge impact turn debate. It becomes a little bit different uh, in the context of that. So that's like one thing we did. And that was like on the, you know, 2010 or 2011 topic back in the day. But I think that's where you have to be. And you have to be updated on the stuff you're reading. If you have not put that time in, I think gaffs are going to just be way better and better, much better advantage, especially because the old school arguments that people used to read against the court's counter plan, like ground spec and, you know, having disads to kind of like what the precedent was you used or what grounds you used. People aren't ready to do that. And I can't really imagine that high school, a majority of high school programs, 70 to 80% of high school programs in the country can dedicate time and resources into like developing a robust negative arsenal to that kind of stuff. Uh, Cause like you said, in the finals, the same marks, like one of the things that was read was this new app, but I mean, the courts app, I mean, just the plan alone is just kind of like, it says they'll just like clarify a decision. And then they just called it a day. I have no idea what that would mean. I mean, in a, mo- in a old school courts debate, you would go through the process of like, you got to spec what grounds it's on. You got to spec at least what the decision is going to say something where like, give us something to go on some stable ground. Uh, and without that, it kind of like the apps are going to get a ton of flexibility of interpretation. Uh, the next spin is going to be way too late in the debate. The app's going to position themselves like way better. And if they have something small, the area, the only other area the next is going to be able to expose are these areas where like affirmatives bite off more than they can chew. And they'll be like, you know, we'll solve for like the liberal world order. Or we'll solve for like a huge precedent that goes like well beyond the scope of what the affirmative is, but just try to say like there's a huge spillover effect. And then you can kind of win that like there's an advantage counter plan that solves the impact and the AF can't solve. And then you just go for your disad to the actual action. Uh, but I think those are the things people have to start thinking about if you want to be like someone that's racing for the national championship. But if you're a, a smaller programmer, you're someone who's just trying to be in the ELIMS. I don't think there's any world that you can just sit and build up a robust spend all your time between now and over Christmas break building up like a robust courts negative strategy because 
I just think there's so many affirmatives that aren't going to be the courts that it's going to be tough for you to be in a great position because like you're going to lose on all these other things where people are going to be making character changes to their affirmatives that aren't going to be the courts. People are going to be reading new advantages. They're going to be reading mechanisms. They're going to be reading new stuff to like agafs that have nothing to do with the court. And if you're not staying up to date on all that stuff, you're going to just lose because they're going to be better at having better evidence, having new updates in terms of like what's happening with those type of areas. Uh, and you're just going to be way farther behind. So it's going to be a lot of trade-off, but I do agree that your take on like the way the half selection has been predictable, but it'll become less predictable is probably right. Especially because like nowadays we don't really hold people's feet to the fire. And like we said in the first one is that there's been no real limit set on the topic yet. No one's really been able to say like, what is protection of water resources? So the result is like, we don't really know what is topical and what's not. And there hasn't been that line yet. So I think half interpretation is going to be endless. And I don't think negatives have figured out how to challenge that yet. That leads me to my third takeaway, which is that, uh, and I think this was predictable, there's not a core negative position this year. I think some people thought that it might be the business confidence or like regulation bad style disadvantage. To some extent, that does exist. Uh, Regulation bad disadvantage and an incentive counter plan does link to some cases on the topic, but it certainly does not link to all cases on the topic. And at least in the elimination rounds of St. Mark's, it links to a relatively small percentage of the apps on the topic. Unlike last year, where, I mean, there was a crime DA, although that was not popular, really, uh, there was an abolition K and the abolition K gave the negative a relatively strong position kind of throughout the year. The affirmative had to be reform, not abolition. The negative would say abolition. You know, some teams didn't choose that because they didn't like uh, critique arguments and they just didn't, they specialized in um, disadvantages and counterplans, but that at least was a, a negative position that you could kind of be pretty confident you could read in every debate. There is not really a comparable position this year. And I think like last year, when the first semester was dominated by the election DA, this year, the first semester has been dominated by the Biden uh, agenda, reconciliation slash infrastructure DA. Uh, once that ends, so last year after the election and this year after the conclusion of the uh, the uh, reconciliation debate, which could be imminent, like even by the time you listen to this, maybe that'll be over, uh, the negative is going to be in rough shape. The federalism disadvantage, like I said before, you know, it, to some extent it links to most affirmatives, but it's not great, a great disadvantage. Obviously, the politic, there will be politics disadvantages, presumably, um, even after the reconciliation uh, DA is done. But the quality of those uh, tends to vary, and I, I don't expect them to be excellent. I would imagine maybe the 2022 midterms DA will make an appearance, although I don't think that that's going to be a very strong disadvantage. It doesn't seem like most of these affirmatives would make really any difference in how people vote in the midterms. Uh, and so as a result, the the negative is, is in a, a tough position, kind of as expected. Uh, the affirmatives aren't great. I think uh, you're right about that. Negatives aren't great either. Um, is that your impression so far? Uh, kind of what is your what is your sense of the negatives ground on the water topic? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have been shocked with the number of two NRs on the Biden agenda DA, but that also sort of reflects the little that I guess students know in regards to like the political landscape. I can't really envision a world that like Biden has to spend a ton of political capital on the plan in terms of like how it locks in and is intersects with the people that he has to win over for his agenda. Unless like every debate is about mansion or cinema, I don't really see a world that like the debates are super winnable because for every person that might happen, it's like, well, one, the Republicans, it's like, it's already shown that like Biden has kind of like 
pushed away. Like, yes, he says compromise, but when it comes down the end, it's always going to be like a 50, 50 split. And that's what we're going to do. And it's going to be about mansion incentive of being on board. And like, there's obviously some of these apps that would obviously be particularly unpopular with them. And then there are other ones I can just imagine, like they don't really have a stake in one way or the other. Like, I can't imagine like some of the apps that, you know, natural gas, I could definitely assume that like, you know, would have an impact on mansion and maybe even cinema being in Arizona, but like the real regard is like some of the apps are so like small. I don't know what they would, what impact it would have on them. And having the broader discussion, it's like, well, obviously like a lot of the broad themes of the affirmatives would be popular with the Democrats and a lot of the broad themes of the affirmatives would be unpopular with the Republicans. But like, that's where we sit now. It's 50-50. And I don't think the debates are getting that deep at 70% of the debates that are happening on the agenda are getting that deep. They're just like, it's unpopular. And it's like, with who, with it, it, those aren't being discussed. Or it's like, it saps as political capital, but it's like, how are you winning that? Like, there's actually an investment of political capital beyond the people. Cause that's always the thing is I think people have lost out on what the politics dissent is. And unless everyone re got retrained in the summer, people are just flying blind on how they're reading the politics DA anymore because for the Trump administration, like no one was really reading it as a two in our strategy in many regards. I mean, people are just reading it to read it and who cared what was happening with it. But the idea about political capital is like tied to like who he has to persuade. And it's like right now he has to persuade, like either keep the progressives on board with kind of a more moderate package of his agenda or keep mansion and cinema on board. But like nothing is replicating what's happening in these actual debates. So instead people are just getting away with like huge swaths of misleading link arguments and, you know, maybe in the block, it gets broken down into who has to be played into this. But I think it's like the neg should not be getting as much run with the Biden agenda to say as they are. But I think a lot of it's also because like the AF doesn't have like a lot of link turn ground. So it becomes like what you and I have described as like this death by a thousand cut strategy, the affirmative has to use. And that's not really a winner anymore when everything's assumed to be offense, defense. Other than that, I think like the other stuff's like, you know, there is no core generic. I wish that the word regulate, you know, was in the red resolution. I think I wish it was a regulations topic so we can talk more about that but like i said without having like more predictable limit on kind of what protection is of water resources i think it's a lot harder to win these like bizcon disads and then beyond that the sky's the limit there is no core generic there's not even a core critique on the topic and it would be nice i mean even like the, i think there is some like luke sort of managerialism type arguments People aren't reading that. That's not like in fashion anymore to read like these Foucauldian style arguments. And as a result, like those aren't being read either. The cap K seems to be like a popular argument, but then like when you have like market-based affirmatives, like the cap K goes out the, you know, people are ready to impact turn the cap K. So it's like, you know, we'll just debate that straight up. But yeah, I agree with you. It's tough when people don't think about that. And I've had these conversations with people when we do the NFHS stuff for the topic and say like kind of what is the core negative? Because I think every year you have to start, especially when you have novices kind of being like, here's how you think about debate. You have like a core toolbox and you move on. But when you start with like, you need to have four or five or six or eight core toolboxes against all these different things, debate becomes harder and harder. And I think it's like, how do you, yeah, it should be easy for the app to plan around when there's not a core negative, because without a core negative, that's sort of like engineered into the debate. It's very easy for the app to like pivot around because then it's like, can you win the state's counterplay and reduces the risk of the affirmative to zero. So we debate something small because like any of these diseds, you should have like a huge head start on because your whole app should be predicated on like how to get around like the most basic generic, super ultra generic of every topic. But other than that, yeah, the, the lack of a core generic is going to make it difficult, I think. But the help of like AFs, again, this gets down to the idea that like I think AFs are fighting off more than they can chew. So the advantage counterplan is 
definitely helping out in regards to that. So there's no core generic DA or no core, no core generic K, but I think apps are also like trying to get away with more than they should. And I think the advantage counter plan is helping reduce the size of a lot of that. So that's why you see like two and R's include advantage counter plans a lot more because I think people are starting to identify like apps are starting to say some ridiculous things that they solve for. And the advantage counter plan solves that way better to just kind of like skip through all the, you know, all the different like noise that's happening and get right to what has to be talked about. So yeah, but I agree with you. I mean, no neg position, core negative position is like really tough because like, how do you generate everything from without like a disad that interacts with the affirmative? It's like super hard. I think that's something we'll uh, we'll talk about again as we talk about the topic selection for next year, but it shouldn't be so difficult to identify just like the negative position on the resolution. Like if you think about last year that uh, the affirmative was supposed to increase criminal justice reform, the negative could respond by saying, well, don't do that because that's too easy on the criminals. Uh, or they could say, well, no, don't do that. Abolish the whole system. I'm like, okay, intuitively, the negative had a negative position. Or the previous season, arms sales, uh, the affirmative had to reduce them. The negative would say, well, no, we need to maintain them because they're important for our credibility or they're important to arm our allies or whatever. Like there was a negative position that responded to the resolution. If you think about it this year, like the affirmative has to protect water. Well, the negative has to say, well, no, don't protect water. But why not? Like, why not protect water? Maybe you don't regulate, maybe provide incentives to protect water. Okay, well, but that doesn't, that's not a negative position on this resolution because some affirmatives aren't going to be regulations. Or maybe it's, uh, you know, don't manage the water or whatever, like a, a, a critique style argument. Well, but some of the affirmatives might not manage the water either. They might re- remove existing management or whatever. Like, there's not a single thing that you can just kind of say like, all right, here's what the negative perspective on this topic is. And that's really kind of anomalous in in uh, recent years. Uh, okay, going back a few more topics, you know, immigration, the negative ground was no, legal immigration is bad. Don't do not do that. It's bad for American workers or whatever. It's bad for the economy. Uh, or at the education topic, the affirmative had to expand the federal role. The negative position is, nope, the federal role is bad. It's better to be handled at the states. That's not a great negative position, but at least it's an easily identifiable negative position. Uh, really, for the first time in quite a few years, there's not an easily identifiable negative position. I think maybe the last time I might be missing one, but the uh, ocean uh, topic, the second ocean topic, uh, increased management or development of the ocean. Why not do that? Unclear, not a clear negative uh, argument. So really, of all of the topics that I can remember, um, this one seems most uh, similar to that second uh, ocean topic. No, I say I definitely agree. And I think the one thing, like, I wish we went through sort of like a postmortem of every topic. And we had, because I think like, for example, taking this topic, I would rather have seen an increased regulation on water pollutants or some type of, you know, along that line, because like, it's the same reason that gives me pause about the warming topic. So the idea that the climate change topic, if you think this topic has no core generic, it's similar to the climate change topic because by just looking at the resolution for next year, increasing support of multilateral greenhouse gas emissions reduction regimes, I think the smartest app on next year's topic is going to be a perception-based U.S. supports, you know, leads to like international sign-on advantage. But then when everyone reads their like energy DA or markets DA or whatever, they'll just say like, Congress will block it. It won't happen. We won't actually do anything, but like the perception of the app is good because it leads to like international sign on. And it's like, you know, that is good. 
And then people will be like, well, you don't actually do anything. And it's like, well, we didn't read an advantage about doing anything. We read this perception-based advantage about like, we need to like support it now. And even if like, it doesn't pan out, like the support now is key. And I think that gives me pause because like, I would much rather have a topic that is a baked in regulation or restriction component because increasing support of multilateral greenhouse gas emission reduction regimes is, is great. And I think we need to do that. But like the reason we increase its support would actually be like doing domestic legislation that would actually do these things, carbon tax, cap and trade, you know, restricting, you know, certain industries that that's what we need to do. So having an app that would force the affirmative action to be like a restrictive action is more important than the supportive action. The flip side of that is the NATO topic doesn't make me any more hesitant in the future, just like the, the ultra generic is like there is no ultra. I don't think there's an ultra generic on that either, because it's about the United States increase its security cooperation with NATO. It's like, I don't really know what the DA to that is. Like if the United States increases security cooperation with NATO, it makes NATO stronger. And there may be like DA to that, but like, what's the actual DA? If you're just like NATO super strong now on the AF, non-uniques, all the DAs. So it's like, what is the DA to like increase in security co-op? I don't really know. Cause it's like, we increase, we gave them, we gave NATO countries that the United States is already part of like more cyber tech. What's the DA to that? They'll what, try to win that like the DA is that NATO will do these things. Well, like, NATO's already doing cybersecurity, biotech, and AI. So the question becomes like, where does the link argument assume like the incremental increase in that support? And what does it mean increase security cooperation with NATO? And what is the DA to that? Because I don't think anyone writes in the literature about that, the disadvantage of like doing that. It's one thing to say like not doing it. Uh, but like, it's just funny. It's like, what is there like a backlash? Like if we give them more cybersecurity, you're going to force like the fringe to like have to do more in NATO and they're going to like backlash against the United States. That's like counterintuitive. And I think a lot of this will be people just saying like, oh, it's implicit, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it's implicit that like there would be a reduction of fossil fuels with resolution, the climate change resolution, which isn't true because every AF is not going to reduce fossil fuels and they're going to have a good 2AC to that. Resolve for the implicit link argument is that it increases NATO's role and it'll probably create like encirclement or some kind of posture change that would happen. But that like that's not necessarily true either. I would just be like, we fortify a structure that already exists that would have already triggered our DAs. Very similar on like protection of water. Like obviously the idea is that like it should lead to like reduced pollutants. Like you and I said about Flint was when this topic was being discussed and, you know, going back to it, but it's like, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking necessarily about pollutants and like those discharge pollutants advantages are not what's had ended up being in the end of the debate because there's really no federal action that needs to deal with those because we have not like chopped off kind of a discussion that needs to happen at a federal level, which means that like, yeah, are they implicit? Yes, but they're not forced. And as you said, as the year goes on, it's going to be like these very minute court, small courts asked to do clarifying decisions or, you know, maybe a guidance affirmative of some sort that just leads to these very narrow guidance on like what should happen that aren't going to touch upon any of these things, but they're there's going to be a huge other debate that happens that you're not going to have a generic to because like there's no forced floor of action that has to happen. That's like we are guaranteed that X has to happen from the affirmative, which allows to read a disad against it without having a floor of a minimal amount of action the affirmative must take. It just makes it infinitely harder for the neg to have like really good debates that there's like genuine organic clash that's happening between argumentation. And I think that's also like causing like just problems in debate in general, which means people are reading huge, big stick affirmatives with huge, giant advantages, or they're reading criticisms that are just like, you know, super broad. And those aren't necessarily the best debates, even though they're engaging in terms of academically enriching, but they're not like the best arguments to be dealing with in terms of like clash. And I think if we want to have better debate, we need to have like more embedded clash by the way we write our resolutions. Yeah, I think that's also related to the last uh, takeaway on my list, which is that uh, probably because there's no uh, 
clear negative ground. The successful negative strategies have mostly been just gish galloping. So the one and C on the survey I did of St. Mark's, you can see the number of off-case positions in each one and C and the number of counterplans and uh, T arguments and DAs and, and uh, critiques. And it's uh, it's basically six off is the, the minimum at this point for an elimination round uh, one and C. Uh, and many are in the seven, eight or nine uh, range. Uh, and it's not unusual at all for there to be three or four counterplans in the one and C. So um, I think that's that surprised me a little bit. I didn't realize how ubiquitous that approach had become. I think if I had repeated this uh, and I could go back, I'm sure I did, um, even just three or four years ago, maybe the, the raw number of off-case positions might have been relatively comparable, but I think more would have been in the four, five, six range than the seven, eight, nine range. Um, but the thing that really jumped out at me is the number of counterplans uh, has really increased. So two had started to become pretty standard, but now it seems like three or even four uh, has become generally acceptable or, or standardized. And so as a result, it, it kind of really changes the way that the affirmative has to prepare for the debate, and it changes the way that the debates play out. So even though the debate ends up in the same place, maybe with the politics DA and the state's counterplan or the politics DA and the advantage counterplan or whatever in the 2NR, the affirmative has to answer those arguments quite differently. They have a lot less time to answer those arguments because they have to also answer you know, a series of uh, agent and process counterplans, uh, a series of uh, critique arguments, series of T arguments, whatever. Uh, and so it, uh, I think that's probably why, that's part of why, the explanation for why the politics DA has been, um, to me, so, somewhat surprisingly successful is because it is part of the Gish Gallup 1 and C. So if the affirmative kind of had plenty of time to pick apart the politics DA, they, they could and would, but because there are all these other counterplans in the debate, they're struggling to do that. And I think the negative is just kind of taking advantage of the inherent structural benefit of being negative where they get the big negative block uh, and can put a lot of pressure on the affirmative, just time pressure, just sort of like logistical pressure, not so much argumentative quality pressure. Um, but I was a little bit surprised about that. I can't really criticize it because it's clearly working uh, in the sense that it's, it's successful. Um, it doesn't seem like there is a big judge pushback to this, or if there is, it's not playing out in the judge's decisions. Um, and because the negative, I, I can't say, you know, you should just go for this topic DA instead of doing that because uh, it doesn't really exist. And so I can understand why this is happening. Um, I don't think it likely produces awesome debates. You know, maybe there are exceptions to that, but um, it is very noticeable to me how uh, how big uh, 1NCs have become um, in the elimination rounds on this topic. Any uh, any thoughts or reactions to that, Brent? Yeah, I do agree. I mean, 1NC has been getting significantly bigger for the last decade. The multiple counterplans, the six to eight off regularly, nine off in some regards, 10 off in very few regards, but it happens. And I think this just becomes a very easy way to see like debate is becoming like a betting game. So I always think like one AC reads their advantages. Okay, great. Kind of stock, whatever the case would be. One and C kind of makes an opening bet. They're like nine off. Now it's up to the two AC. And I think it's about an execution game. If the two AC covers, then the AF is like 70% victorious. You know, the 70, 30 odds entering the block are like relatively high. They don't cover or they cover inadequately. You know, it's like 70, 30 neg. And it's because, and I think the reason you're saying we're not seeing a lot of judge pushback against it is I think because the blocks aren't sort of a disaster. The blocks are able to kind of narrow the debate down. There is some argumentative development. Maybe they add in an extra argument they shouldn't have or whatever, but like they get to narrow it down because I think in a lot of regards, the AFs aren't covering 
adequately. So then it becomes just a question of like, how do you execute the block? Did you execute it properly? Did you mess it up? Did you pick and choose the wrong argument? Uh, and then can you capitalize on kind of like under coverage by the affirmative? But if I were to, if we went to go and broke, if we broke down a hundred debates, I would say in those debates, if the two AC covers adequately, the debate is won by the AF. I would say seventy percent of the time. And I know people will probably say, well, like in any debate, if the two AC covers adequately, they're going to win a majority of the debates. And like, yeah, that might be right, but I just think that in these debates where there's seven, eight, nine off, if you cover adequately in the two AC, where you provide yourself offense on every flow, you pick and choose how you're going to answer the arguments and you kind of have like some, you know, you read some add-ons here that work in your favor and you do the things you're supposed to do to kind of put yourself in a strategic position. I think the negs have like spread themselves out of the debate early on. And it basically is like, they've made a big lead bet and you've called them and basically they have nothing. Cause I mean, that's what it kind of shows because it's really hard to disentangle yourself from the big strategy like that when you have a lot of moving parts, because for a majority of these students that are reading these, they're just throwing stuff at the wall. So it's like, they don't know how they all play in with one another. So to kick out of these in a way that like, doesn't put yourself at more harm than when you started your speech uh, in the block, I think is why AFs can. So we have to, I think AFs have to be debating smarter, not just faster, not just covering. I think NEGs, I think I had this conversation with you earlier, but it's like, you know, we used to coach teams. We used to be like, here's the A strategy, here's the B strategy, here's the C strategy. And we used to also tell students like going on, like you should always be able to have at least two strategies in the block or extend three strategies. But now the one and C's are like sometimes like five or six like distinct strategies. And it's real hard to go from like five or six distinct strategies in the one and C to like two or three in the block to like one and the two in R because you haven't really thought out like all these different paths forward. And I think people have also like undervalued like putting up a defense of the case. So I think you've also pot committed to like going for a counter plan in majority of these debates. And I think in debates that the case goes forward, the reason you go for the case is because you had like a turn hidden in there and they didn't cover it well or but it does help you cover up most of the weakness, which is like what you said earlier on the topic, because there's no core generics, because the apps can kind of be anything in the topic super robust and there's not a limit on it. It's really hard to have case next against everything, especially the answers to a lot of the case stuff that people may read. So the result is you just like overload on the off case positions, forcing the apps to spend a lot of time on it, which makes that they means that they can't read as many add-ons. They can't extend the case adequately. And the debates that do happen on the case are not like robust substantive debates on the case where there's like a lot of clash. So it definitely helps overcome and cover some of the weaknesses that NEGs put forward in a lot of these debates. But, you know, like I said, if AFs cover and they'll win 70-30, if you're like smart in the way you cover and you think about strategically kind of like using all these off cases against the negative when you're affirmative, I think your winning percentage will go up to like 85-90% of the time. Because I think it's like untenable for the negative to keep a strategy of like eight to 10 off or seven to nine off as like a common negative strategy, because I just think you're putting too many things out there. There's too many balls in the air for you to kind of juggle. And as a result, I think like affirmative should be punishing negatives that do this rather than, but I think the reason the judges aren't doing it is because I think that most of the debates judges are watching are kind of like playing out the way that we just talked about, which is like either AFs drop the ball and negs are easily able to put the pieces back together or AFs are like knocking it out of the park. And at that point, the negs just do whatever they can to kind of stay in the game. And I just don't think anyone's really been exposed for the fact that like the AF kind of dropped the ball and the neg can't like collapse properly or they picked wrong. So they're like kind of seeing it. So I just think a lot of these things resolve themselves in the block, even though in the one and C they kind of like are a disaster. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. The, the way I've been thinking about it is that um, at some point, the strategy that you would expect from a negative against an undisclosed new affirmative 
has just become the negative strategy against every firm. So it used to be that if you were debating an undisclosed affirmative, you'd have to throw out you know, several different strategies because you weren't sure exactly which one was right. And you'd kind of have to test, like, did the affirmative have a federal key warrant? Did they have like an answer to a process counterplan? Did they have an answer to the BizCon DA? Like, did they have an answer to the politics DA? Whatever. Uh, and then based on that, you would then decide what to go for. That used to be against a new affirmative, but against an existing affirmative, you would have a strategy like you would already decide which of those things you were going to go for. Uh, and now, for I'm sure for a variety of reasons, for whatever reason, uh, the strategy that was previously expected against a new AF is the strategy that's kind of used in most every debate, not every debate, some uh, some of the elimination rounds, there were some excellent kind of case-specific strategies read, but uh, against a much broader range of existing affirmatives than I think um, I can remember in previous years, especially maybe um, five to 10 years ago, uh, the negative is just treating an, an existing known affirmative that you know their opponent has been reading for multiple tournaments as if it was an undisclosed new affirmative. They're loading up on a bunch of off-case, testing each of the different possible um, kind of core negative tests of an affirmative case, uh, minimal case defense, mostly just impact defense, and they're kind of gish galloping their way through. Uh, and that's interesting. I don't know. I don't necessarily know why that has um, become popular. It might have something to do with college debate uh, and the the number of elim- you know competitive elimination rounds in college that are a new affirmative. So maybe a lot of the higher profile debates that high school students are watching are those new affirmative debates where the negative is using that strategy. And some high school students are seeing it and saying, all right, well, we'll do that as well. Uh, But instead of doing that only against a new affirmative, we'll do that against the CAFOs affirmative, or we'll do that against the fracking affirmative or whatever. Uh, But that's that's definitely a noticeable trend. Um, I'm working on a a piece that I'll have on the 3NR sometime, maybe by the time you read this, maybe not, maybe after, about uh, some tips for responding to this type of thing, this type of negative strategy when you're affirmative. Um, And so you can look for that there. Uh, A lot of this, though, I think is... is, uh, Beyond just this topic, I'm not sure that it matters. I'm not sure how much of this is really a product of this topic. Although maybe some, maybe a little bit. The, I think that the topic where the Gish Gallup negative was least common of the recent topics was the arms sales topic. And I think that's because the arms sales topic just lent itself to higher quality negative ground. There were fewer affirmative cases. The negative tended to be more prepared, kind of generally. Uh, there were a lot more of the percentage of overall negative debates that were against a handful of affirmative cases. Uh, and so I thought the debates on that topic were quite good, generally. Uh, CGR reduced that, and then I think this topic has reduced it even more. And so maybe maybe it is more due to the topic that I'm giving it credit for, but um, I think it's a, a combination, probably, a, a confluence of the topic and the, the specific attributes of the topic that we've talked about, the lack of the generic negative, the issues with topicality, et cetera, et cetera, and just emerging trends that we're going to endure regardless of what the topic was. But it'll be interesting to see if that trend continues throughout the year, or if maybe there's a little bit of pullback as affirmatives get better at dealing with the Gish Gallup, because the, the, there are kind of inherent uh, shortcomings of that strategy, kind of like you've said, the negative only gets so much speech time. And at some point you have to have enough time to make your argument. And if you, uh, if you kind of overspread yourself, uh, and the affirmative covers that you can you can have a hard time you know even just reading all of the cards that you need in order to put together a, a complete position that convinces the judge. And so at some point I think uh, maybe there will be a natural limit to the the extension of this. I can't really imagine. I mean, a few years ago I guess I would have said I can't imagine that every one and C in the elimination rounds would be nine off with four counterplants. But I certainly at this point cannot imagine you know in a few years that every elimination round will have twelve off and six counterplants. It just doesn't seem like that's possible. Um, 
but I guess we'll see. Maybe that that'll sound pretty silly in retrospect as I'm uh, reviewing a tournament in three years, and you know the average number of off cases is 14, and the average number of counterplans is eight or whatever. Um, but hopefully, I'm wrong. One thing that you said that is interesting, and I'd be would love to hear your opinion on it because I think you've read some of these docs a little deeper than I have. But I would love to be able to go through and like grade everyone in C's speech doc based on like argument thoroughness. Did it include an internal link? Did it include a fully highlighted impact that fleshed out what the tag said it did and said the scenario that it said it did? Uh, did they read a little piece of link evidence that was like contextualized to an affirmative? And or did it actually like make an argument? Because I think that's the one thing that has happened with like speed, speech docs, and kind of this like proliferation of one and C arguments is that when the one and C gets read, we assume that it's just inserted into the record. People look at the doc and two ACs treat every argument as if like it's a composed, fully articulated argument. So they answer it as such. And like the judge also like once the 2AC identifies it as such and they try to answer it, the judge forces them to have to answer in its totality. And they're held to a higher standard in some regard, which means that like when I said cover, I meant like cover adequately to the point where like you have now met the standards the judge expects. Because we've always joked about it back in the day, but sometimes it's like, if you didn't read internal link to the disad, it's like, I've always tried to instruct my teams to just be like, this isn't a complete argument. We'll answer it once you make it complete. But I just don't know if that even flies with a majority of judges anymore, where they just didn't assume you spot it. So people are reading, two ACs have to read cards and make a bunch of arguments and things that aren't complete arguments. But like, it obviously takes less for the one C to read an incomplete argument than it takes for the two AC to answer an argument completely. And there's a huge trade-off, which then... Once you don't, you can kind of get rid of all the stuff that isn't complete and then kind of finish the completion of the argument in the block that you want to, or go for the argument that is the most complete in the one and C and kind of extend that through easily. And I think that's the one thing you were saying, like, can you imagine, can I imagine a world? Do I want to imagine a world where there's 12 off being read? No. Can I very easily see a world where there's 12 off read? Yes. Because what we constitute as being an argument is decreasing by the year. And, you know, we had talked about earlier, you know, before we started taping about this idea that like now, because of the precision in which electronic digital debate has allowed us to kind of highlight words and highlight cards and remove things in their cards. And, you know, when you're looking at verbatim, there's like a patchwork of words that get put together that don't even like get to the point of an argument. But when read at like a super fast speed, they all blur together. So people like read into the evidence that's being happened because like there's no way you're like actually hearing every single word in a way that like makes sense. Uh, because afterwards, if we read some of this stuff back to our students or had the students read it out loud slowly, there wouldn't even be complete sentences. So I can definitely imagine a world with 12 off becomes like commonplace in the future as students like become more technically proficient reading uh, and read faster and, and things like that very easily because we're allowing it to get there. And I think that's where judges kind of have to step in and kind of stop this proliferation from happening. Because I think that's like where the worst parts of debate are going to start coming out is like the value and the, the depth of the debates that we are having are not going to be as good as they were if we just keep allowing one and C's to be incomplete. Uh, at the sake of like testing the desirability of these affirmatives. I mean, that's the, uh, that gets back to the name of the podcast. The, uh, the debate has a burden of proof versus burden of rejoinder problem. And the, uh, the burden of proof is, is seriously minimized, uh, if not eliminated entirely. It seems like, uh, from my perspective, the, uh, like the ineffective or just kind of silly gish gallop negative is just like a slew of undeveloped arguments. The like, uh, more successful or kind of like more defensible gish gallop is, you know, they'll have, the strategy that they're probably going for is, is complete and kind of the one and see for that is normal and full. Um, but then there's just a series of, of little tests that the negative can throw out that require more of an affirmative response than 
it takes to say the argument. So like a state's counter plan, that's a tax that, you know, is quite extreme with interstate compacts and whatever um, preempts to solvency deficits. And then just like a one or two sentence card, that's like, this is a state issue or whatever that doesn't really support the text. You can probably get that out in 10 to 15 seconds in order for the affirmative to, to actually thoroughly answer the state's counterplan. They're going to need to spend 45 seconds or a minute. Uh, you do the same thing with a court's counterplan. You just have a court's text and then a card that's like the courts can compel action or whatever. Maybe it takes you 10 to 12 seconds to read in order to respond to that, even just to permute it or whatever. The affirmative is going to need to spend more time than that. They're up to you know, 35, 45 seconds. If you do it enough times, you've just sort of made it almost logically or like not logically, logistically, uh, metaphysically impossible for the affirmative to cover. Um, because by the time they respond to each gish gallop that kind of accumulates more of their speech time um, with each argument, they don't have enough time left to answer the well-developed position. And so then the negative uh, you know, extends it in the block and the affirmative is behind the eight ball. And that seems to be when the negative wins. That's sort of what's happening. Uh, it does seem like in a few of the elimination rounds, especially the earlier elimination rounds, um, the gish gallop was successful just kind of in and of itself, like the two AC probably just made some mistakes, wasn't wasn't really ready. Um, but when it's at its its peak, it seems like the uh, logical ex, uh, extension or whatever the logical conclusion of the Gishgalp strategy is to um, basically create an insurmountable two AC time burden that precludes the affirmative from effectively investing enough time into answering the the actual negative strategy. And so I've that's why I've been thinking about this. And so I've got a few uh, suggestions, but I'm going to save that for a post because I think that's easier to uh, to lay out in uh, written text than to try to say it out loud. But uh, that's definitely been something I've been thinking about. And I think uh, our listeners, if you're a debater uh, or a coach, that's something you should be thinking about because it, it certainly seems like the trend is that's the style of negative. There's not a lot of negatives that are the you know two off T and critique or uh, three off counterplan and two DAs and a bunch of case answers like that doesn't seem to be happening, uh, at least not in the uh, elimination rounds of our high school tournaments at the moment. Before we uh, end this segment, I just want to throw out a couple of predictions for the rest of the year. See if you uh, have any of your own, Brian. Uh, we won't spend too much time on this, but and I've already mentioned some of these. So one thing I think I would expect, and if I was a student, I would um, be predicting is that there will be more court affirmatives. Uh, the uh, Some of the most recent new affirmatives that teams have broken in elimination rounds have been court affirmatives. Like I said before, I don't think that the court DA, that the traditional court DAs are very effective. I would encourage students to revisit some of the like K uh, negative approaches to court affirmatives, critical legal study style um, critiques, maybe updated for the contemporary uh, era. Um, we've been working on a position like that. I don't know if we've read it yet, but the um, the kind of like uh, more modern critique of uh, using the judiciary uh, seems like a good approach. Um, like Brian said, impact turns to the typical process-based court advantages, uh, maybe some, some of the old style um, different court disadvantages uh, that the like court capital DA has been all the rage or the court. Some people would call the court politics DA has been the like number one court DA for the last few years. Uh, I think that probably needs to end. That's probably not the best court DA anymore. Uh, need to maybe try different court DAs with court legitimacy, bad DAs, maybe um, reversed hollow hope to sad stuff like that. Uh, but definitely spend some time learning the court area. If that's a weakness of yours at the moment. Uh, second thing, like I said before, I think the midterm election will start to be read as a disadvantage once the reconciliation uh, debate in the Congress is over. There will there will be other politics days as well, but I think it's about time when the midterm is going to get uh, start being debated about. I don't think that's going to be a good DA, like I said, but um, definitely something that you should update if you just have your camp files, maybe um, a few updates about uniqueness, a few updates about blank. If you're negative, maybe consider trying to write it, uh, but midterm DA, probably coming soon. Uh, and then the last thing, and this is this happens all the time this time of year, is more contrived 
politics DAs and then associated counter plans. So what always happens in the holiday season is Congress runs up against a series of deadlines and they've supercharged it to themselves this year to try to buy time to finish the reconciliation passage process. Uh, there's going to be a series of deadlines starting in early December, and then they're probably going to kick the can to a little bit later in December. And then it's going to be right before Christmas uh, recess for the Congress. And they're going to like be on the verge of uh, breaching the debt ceiling. They're going to be on the verge of uh, government shutdown. They're going to be on the verge of not uh, extending important government programs. Uh, there'll be all sorts of uh, kind of artificial deadlines that create persuasive politics DAs, or I don't know if persuasive is fair, but historically relatively successful politics DAs. And so you'll need to uh, kind of read up on that process, maybe look at past examples from uh, the December timeframe in, in previous years. Last year is not a, not as good of a, an example because it was an election year, but um, look at non-election years, uh, government shutdown, debt ceiling, agenda crowd out style, fiat based politics disadvantages, rider disadvantages also become more popular during those times. And then process counterplans that enable the negative to solve the case and avoid those short-term political disadvantages. So these are, you know, ungenerously, they're just delayed counterplans in disguise, but um, counterplans that kind of allow the negative to say, well, we can do your affirmative, but just after we raise the debt ceiling, otherwise we won't raise the debt ceiling and that'll be a catastrophe. Or yeah, we can do your affirmative, but not until after they extend the budget so that the government doesn't shut down. Government shutdown is bad. Those types of counterplans um, tend to be historically popular in the uh, the early to mid-December tournaments. And then usually, and we'll see if it happens again this year, usually Congress finally gets its act together in the waning moments um, before the deadline. And then there will be a new set of political disadvantages that start in January uh, when Congress returns from their extended winter break. Um, we'll see if that plays out again this year. I could see it not. I could definitely see them breaching the debt ceiling or something else catastrophic happening. Um, but if uh, if history is any guide, that's what you should expect, uh, kind of starting at around that Glenn Brooks Thanksgiving weekend tournament, but then especially the, the first and second and third weeks in um, December when there are some major tournaments. Those will be the the big time player. So spend some time looking into the past ones, put your materials together to answer them. Um, if that's your thing, maybe work on uh, writing some of those arguments. Any any predictions from you, Brian, about uh, what we should expect going forward? I mean, one of my predictions that I hope doesn't come true, but I assume that it will, is I think apps will have less and less to do directly with water. And I think that'll be something that people will have to keep an eye out for because I think that our inability to kind of limit the topic to this point of the year, like I'm not seeing a really great interpretation of protection of not really, there's really not a great idea of like water resources, what they are. Uh, and there's not really anything that links to like the direct nature of needing to protect them because like increasing the protection of could be anything. And I think the idea of like effects topicality has like been something that like people haven't been like super good going for mainly because it's not ingrained in the students anymore. Like I had a conversation with a student the other day and it was actually one of my LDRs, but they just like totally thought that effects topicality was like something completely different than what it was, even though we've had these conversations because they don't really like think it through. So I can definitely see like AFs that are just like right now we see like these military AFs that are like water infrastructure on the military. I can also just see an AF being like ban basing and just be like, that's a protection to water and just be like, you know, the military has a huge impact on water or just like the ban, whatever bad practice it is. But it's like something at a federal level that like you've not necessarily predicted because it's not in that like idea of like, how is it a protection of water resource? And I think people will get further away from like talking about water, but the effect of the AF being something that they do will be like a protection of water resources. And since it's like tough to say like, you know, it'll be something that's substantial, it will protect water. Uh, and, but it won't have anything, it won't actually be something that we'd like predicted that does that. 
uh, in some regard. Uh, I think that'll be that'll happen a lot more. And I think that'll get them a lot more like critically oriented or more left leaning uh, kind of literature that people aren't necessarily reading now. We'll get away from like these big hegemony economy environment type impacts, but more so in just sort of like maybe more anti-capitalist literature, more like empired kind of literature and stuff like that about how we operate as a society. Uh, I think those will be interesting to kind of see as they come out. I think people will make that move in that direction because I don't think it's the effects topic because they'll always be like this, this directly affects it. And I think it will be more so like the utility of the 2AC in regards to like what they can do against your 1NC is where the real abuse happens in those debates because not being able to tie it to like actually directly impacting water, et cetera, will be like where the 2AC gets to flex about how a lot of your stuff doesn't apply and doesn't have the impact you talk about. But other than that, I think you're kind of spot on on what's going to happen uh, as we move forward in a lot of regards to these. And I think the topics, like I said, I think this topic's not going to get better as we move forward. I think the topic has kind of already reached some of its ends. And I think the areas we go now are going to be the courts at a precedent advantage, a very small guidance affirmative that has a you know, specific mechanism to it. Uh, very small areas of the topic that might have like states-based advantages or things like that. Like people might get tricky and just like, you know, I've always been someone to coach teams later, you know, ELIMS or prepping for the TLC and stuff. It's just kind of like, let's walk into the main shtick that everyone's reading. And so like have an app that's built to beat the politics DA rather than avoid the politics DA or have an app that's like beat to build the state's counter plan because you're just basically like betting on the fact they're going to read that. So it's like, what are you going to say in the 2AC? Because you might have advantages that basically are like something that interacts directly with them that makes it hard for them to solve. So those are kind of things I think about moving forward. And I think moving away from like the direct implications of water, I think will be some area like, I think we'll move away from like where the 1AC doesn't even like talk about water at all. But when you say it in the 1NC, like you didn't read a water advantage or anything to do with water, the 2AC will have a great answer answer to topicality, but the rest of the debate won't be about water at all. And I think that's probably where we're going to end up in many regards. Uh, But like I said, hopefully I'm wrong, but I think like if I know how some of the best programs strategically think, that's where we'll end up. Uh, I don't wouldn't blame them because like I said, there's no floor or ceiling to the resolution. So, I mean, at that point, and there's no good limiting words and T has not been something that people are willing to draw a line in the sand on. Now, I think maybe one or two ELIMs uh, on your list have like been resulted a two and R on topicality. And I don't really know what the core of those decisions have been at the end, but if I were to guess, I would say topicality is going to become continue to be less popular as the year goes on uh, to the point where none of the two and R's by the end of the year will be on topicality because no one's drawn a line in the sand. And I think we'll have to focus more on kind of like, again, if there was a postmortem on resolutions more so being like, you know, having words that allow topic there to be reasonable topicality arguments that define what the topic is early on in the year that we can all agree to, I think will lead to like some better topics being debated. Yeah, I think that's interesting. That's uh, essentially, that's what I've heard from uh, folks who debated or coached on the the eighties water topic. That's very similar to ours. Uh, That's what they said. The the topic ended up not really being about water Uh, and affirmatives would just read big stick advantages. And then if a negative would say T you're not water, and then they'd read a little like water add on and that would prove their topical. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if that's how it plays out. That would, uh, that would certainly be different than how it's been playing out so far.
we'll call that uh, an episode for today. Uh, a reminder to subscribe. If you are enjoying what you're listening to, you can subscribe to our podcast in any of the uh, podcast applications of choice. We're in uh, Overcast, we're in iTunes, we're in Google. Um, I think we're in Spotify. We, we should be in all of them. Um, if we're not in your uh, preferred podcast app of choice, uh, send us an email, let us know. We'd also really be interested in hearing some feedback from anyone out there who's listening and who has attended an in-person tournament. Um, there've been a few. Uh, and as we start to navigate the return to some in-person competition, we, uh, we're going to do an episode uh, kind of about that. And we'd love to hear um, perspectives from people who've experienced it. What was it like? Um, logistically, uh, kind of uh, emotionally, uh, vibes wise, what was it like to be at a tournament with a bunch of people? Uh, a lot of us, I think, have been going to school in person. And so I assume it was somewhat, somewhat similar, but I have yet to be at an in-person uh, debate tournament. And so um, I'm curious uh, to hear your feedback. If you want to share, uh, email us podcast at the three nr.com. Uh, we're also, uh, we're looking, maybe we'll invite a couple of guests on that episode to, to share their perspectives about the return to in-person debate, but, um, you can expect that in a future episode. Uh, until then, uh, check out the three nr.com. I've been posting some uh, new content and I've got a few things in the, uh, in the, uh, queue to post soon. So there'll be some new content, uh, next week for those of you that follow us, uh, at the three nr.com. So for Brian, I am Bill Batterman, and this has been Burton of Rejoinder, a podcast from the three and all.